Thank you for tuning into Stepping Stones of Faith. Stepping Stones of Faith is a ministry of Claytonville United Brethren Church. Our service times are as follows. Sunday morning Sunday school starts at 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning worship starts at 10.30 a.m. If you would like to join us for any of these services, our address is 106 Elizabeth Street, Claytonville, Illinois, 60926. We hope to see you this morning. All right. Well, this morning, we are going to continue in our study, James chapter 3. Last week, we, we looked at the tongue and how the tongue is a driving force or a manifestation of the root cause of the heart and how the heart is, when the heart isn't right, the tongue isn't right. So today we are looking at verse 13 and following down. We may get into a little bit of chapter 4 today. But we will go from there and see where we end up. Amen? How about that? <clears throat> Wisdom from above. James chapter 3, verse 13. If you're in the Red Bible, 1052 is your page number. And we read, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show his works by his good life in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have better, bitter envying and strife in your hearts, do not boast and do not lie against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. <clears throat> For where there is envying and strife, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father, bless this word, minister to our hearts, and I pray that you would uh, speak to us today and help us to be better today than we were yesterday. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> this is a culmination of this chapter in some of the chap some of the previous chapters. Who is wise in understanding among you? So it's a question we have to ask ourselves. Paul's asking this question. It's a it's a question that is kind of a double-edged sword. If you boast and say, "Well, I'm pretty smart," he goes on and says that that's not right. But if we're humble in heart, who is, who is wise understanding among you? Let him show his works by his good life in a meekness of wisdom. So he's saying, if you think you're smart, if you know you're smart, if God has given you the, the intelligence and it's from God, you shouldn't be boasting about it. Meekness, it says, with meekness and wisdom... The meekness of wisdom. What does it mean to be meek? Jesus was lowly and meek. What does it mean to be meek? I see meekness, in my own opinion, of course, as someone who is not necessarily weak, but, and, but who, is, who is 
not going to be the one to stand up and take credit for something that they've done. That's meekness in my understanding of what meekness is. So he's saying the opposite of meekness is being boastful. And that's not a good thing. But he says, if you have bitterness and strife in your hearts, do not boast and do not lie against the truth. So if we have bitterness, what causes boasting? Bitterness and strife. Well, you think, you think, you're, you think you're so good. Look what I did. Usually the bitterness and strife comes from a place of jealousy or a place of, of strife because we think someone is less than us and we are better than them. So a place of strife is where boasting comes from. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. So, we know by the scripture that we are to die to self daily. Paul says, die to self daily. He says of himself that he would, he would beat down the old man daily. So, being boastful, being uh, look at me, look at me, being, having pride is not from God. That's what he's saying. It's not from God. It's from ourselves. It's from self. It's from, it's from the earthly wisdom. It's unspiritual and it's devilish. So we have to ask ourselves, who then is the Lord of the earth? Jesus is the Lord of heaven. Who's given reign of the earth? Satan has been given reign of the earth. So he says, it's devilish. <clears throat> it is unspiritual. And it's earthly. We're, we're supposed to be heavenly-minded. And with that comes meekness and wisdom and understanding and everything opposite of bitterness and strife and all those things. For where there is envying and strife, there is confusion and every evil work. Do you ever notice when someone's bitter? or they've got something against somebody, and they, you ask them, what's your deal with this person? They have their own side of it. Well, this, this happened, this person said this and did this, and sometimes that didn't really happen. Not that they're saying that they're lying, but they remembered a different way because they're remembering how they felt and what they perceived was happening rather than what actually happened. That's what happens with bitterness and strife. It causes co confusion. Is this what really happened or is this how you felt? Well, I, that's, I can remember, that's how I remember it. But maybe it wasn't really that way. Maybe it wasn't really that way. Maybe it was another way. Maybe you just didn't, maybe you read into it. Or maybe you, you felt a certain way and thought that this is how it was, really was. When it really wasn't. Envying and strife causes confusion. And with confusion can cause anger. And with anger can cause hatred. And hatred can cause a physical thing. Somebody getting hurt physically. So every evil work. 
But he says in verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now let's look at this for a moment because we're talking about partiality. Without partiality, we talked about partiality in chapter 2. What is partiality all about? That's where we put somebody higher up or somebody lower than they should be or somebody higher up than they should be. That's when we have partiality. That's when we, when we favor someone over something else. Or and he's talking about without partiality. We're not favoring <clears throat> a certain circumstance over something else. It is, a, it is a scientific fact that when people are offended or when people have arguments and they tell somebody about it, it is a natural thing for when someone tells somebody about something that happened to them, they always paint themselves into the, in, in the brighter light. That's a scientific fact. Whether, no matter how it went down, they paint themselves in the brighter light because they want to bring themselves, put themselves out as something that really wasn't. And to that person, to that person that's doing that, that seems real to them. I did this because they did this to me and this is how I reacted because I felt, you know, and all the, all the stuff they put out there, painting themselves in the positive light, is scientifically proven that that happens. And what happens then is sometimes those things are not always accurate. Not that they're lying intentionally, but it's not always accurate. But wisdom from above is first pure. In other words, it's not, it's not uh, spun a certain way. Okay, the wisdom isn't spun a certain way for an agenda or anything like that. It's pure. It's peaceable. Doesn't cause strife. It brings peace. It's gentle meaning we're not going to get offended. It's gentle. Open to reason. Wow, wouldn't that be something if, this, if a lot of, the, of, of society was open to reason? Wouldn't that be something? If they're open to reason because when we're not open to reason, what happens? We, we end up in a society we're in today. Don't, don't, don't offend me. Or if somebody has a difference of opinion than you, or if you have a difference of opinion of someone else, and it then becomes an issue and you lose uh, a friendship or you lose a relationship because of a difference of opinion because we're not open to reason. I remember when you could actually openly debate with someone and not lose a friendship if you didn't agree. Anybody else remember that? That's not the case anymore. That's not the case anymore. You have a difference of opinion. You have, you're standing in jeopardy of losing a relationship because you feel a certain way. We can't agree to disagree. You have to believe the way I do or else we're going we're gonna to go our separate ways. Unfortunately, that's the norm in our country. And that's the norm in society. Not just this country, but society. That is the norm. And that's unfortunate. 
Because I, I, I don't remember if anybody, I don't remember when I watched this, but if anybody's ever seen the movie called The Great Debaters with Denzel Washington, that is a good movie. There was a, there was a, there was debate teams, and he, and he was, and they ended up being the champions of the, of, of the debate team under his leadership in the movie. And I'm not sure if it was under, if it was a true story or not, but just the idea to debate, to debate a topic, to get a different perspective. Now, if you look at the presidential debates or the debates for the coming, upcoming elections, if, though, if you've watched those, those debates are not debates. They are differences of opinion and then trashing one another for their opinions. They're not debates. They're not debates because they're not open to reason. That is the new norm. You can't walk away from something like that and say, well, we're still friends. No, hurtful things are said. Hurtful things are done in debates now, no matter what kind of debate it is. But it is gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. There's no mercy. No mercy when it comes to that. Remember that movie, The Karate Kid? No mercy. No mercy. There's no mercy. That's why everything is out in the open in a debate. They can sling whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. They can trash your, a person's character because there's no mercy. But wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, doesn't cause turmoil. It's gentle. It's open to reason, full of mercy. So look at a, next time there's a presidential debate, just watch five minutes of it. I don't say watch all of it, just watch five minutes of it and see if these things are present in that debate. Let's just, let just, just for five minutes, watch and see if that debate is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and full of mercy. And guess what? It's not going to be. Because that's not what it's about. It's about trashing everyone else and making yourself look the best. And that's not what debates are for. Debates are not for that. Debates are for getting a different point of view, getting a different perspective, getting to understand and know whether it's a debate team or whatever else, getting to know those people that are up on stage, debating, getting to know their point of view, their perspective, not trashing someone else for not having the same perspective. And then he goes on and it says, and it has good fruits. Watch a presidential debate. See if there's good fruits in that. No good fruits in that. Without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's not a presidential debate. That's part of it right there. Partiality and hypocrisy is part of debates nowadays. It's part of debates. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
So righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We are, as I've said many times, the ambassadors of Christ. And we know what an ambassador does. We've talked about it. An ambassador is to represent the best of the country that they're representing. We are an ambassador to Christ. We're to represent the best of our kingdom in heaven. And we cannot represent the best of our kingdom in heaven if we are debating with these kinds of things, or if we are not representing Christ in the right way, if we, if, if we are not gentle, if we are not peaceable, if we are not open to reason, if we don't have mercy, there's not going to be good fruits. There's not going to be good fruits. It's going to be rotten fruit. And instead of people walking to the cross to give their life to Jesus Christ, they're going to walk away saying, I'm not going to be a part of that congregation because if that's what it is to be a Christian, I don't want it. That's what's going to happen. If we are not these things, we are not driving people to the cross. We are driving them away from the cross. And we are not sowing righteousness. We are not sowing peace. We are sowing discord and destruction to the body of Christ when we are this way. This is what James is talking about. And interestingly enough, he goes right into chapter 4, friendship with the world. Starting in verse 1, where does wars... Where do wars and fights among you come from? Do they not come from your lusts that war in your body? <clears throat> you lust and you lust and do not have, so you kill. You desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your passions. Now, friendship with the world. Where do wars and fights come from? Let's look at inter interpersonal relationships. Workmates, friends, significant others, siblings. Where do those fights come from? <clears throat> Well, a big one is we always want to be right. Right? That's a, that's a human thing. My opinion is my opinion, and then to me, my opinion is right, and you're wrong. So therefore, if you don't agree, there's going to be a fight. Where do wars come from and fights among you come from? The desire to be right. And that is what Paul said, or James said in the previous section, that is un, ungodly, un, what did he say? <clears throat> Bitter and strife among you boasting, do not against, lie against the truth. The wisdom ascends, or the wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. So, that particular thought pattern, where does the fights come from? Think about that in your own life. 
whenever you've had a fight with someone or whether I've had a fight with someone, was it over the idea that I'm right and they're wrong? That my point of view is right according to my own thinking and my own theology and my own, and my own faith? Is that where the war comes from? Do they not come from your lusts, that war in your body? Now, that desire to want to be right is a lust of the flesh. That's a lust of self. I need to be right. You lust and you do not have, so you kill. Now, you don't physically kill someone. I've, I've had arguments and I'm still alive, right? I'm sure we've all had arguments and we're still alive. But what did Jesus say? If you hate your brother, you've committed murder. If you hate your brother, you've committed murder. So you kill. You begin to hate because your point of view is not being taken seriously or not agreed with. And therefore, then you hate someone or you separate yourself from someone and, you dis, dis, and, you're, and you're disgusted and you dislike them and you hate them. So in your Jesus words, you commit murder. You kill. That person no longer deserves what you have, which is salvation because you hate them because they don't agree with you. They might be an unbeliever and you're a believer and you've told them about Jesus and all of a sudden <clears throat> they say things like, well, I don't believe the way you do. Stop talking to me about it. Then you begin to dislike that criticism and you begin to not hang around with them. You begin to then not enjoy their company anymore and you begin to dislike them and therefore they're no longer worthy of the Jesus in which you possess. So then they, are, they die spiritually. So you kill. You desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. So let's look at the things that we ask for. What do we ask for? There are things that we can ask for. We can ask for a car if we don't have one. And it's in God's will for you to have one. You, you can ask for physical healing. If it's in God's will for physical healing, he will provide that. You can ask for finances. If it's in God's will for, you, for, for him to bless you in finances, then he will provide that. You can ask for anything as long as it's, as it's in God's will. How do we know it's in God's will? How do we know that? Well, we ask God, what is your will for my life? I don't have a car, Lord. What is your will? What's the next step? I don't want to do this the wrong way. What is your next step? I don't have any money, Lord. You'll have to provide it by your will. That's how we ask. What is your will for my life in general? Knowing his will causes us to not ask amiss. If we know what his will is for us, we'll ask proper questions. We'll ask for things properly. 
The first thing for our, for our will, God's will for us is to be a witness. First thing we should be doing is sharing faith, sharing our faith with others. And if we ask God, God, give me the opportunity today to share my faith with someone that they might come to know you as Lord and Savior, you think God's going to say, that's not in my will. God's going to say, absolutely, that's in his will. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So that is in his will. So we ask God, give me an opportunity to share my faith with someone that may come to know you as Lord and Savior. A question that is not in God's will is, God, I have this vehicle. It's running fine, but I want a Lamborghini. Or I want this $50,000 truck. Now, mine's paid off, and it's running okay, but I really want a $50,000 truck, Lord. Provide that for me. You think that's in God's will? No. Not for me, anyway. I already know that's not in His will. So why would I ask that? Why do we ask the things we ask? We ask amiss. You fight, yet you, have, you, don't, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your passions. Give me this new truck so I can be the talk of the town. Give me this new truck so I can be the, the only person on the block with a new vehicle. Right? Give me this new house because I want a bigger house. The house you have is fine, but you want a bigger house because I want to keep up with the Joneses. That's our passions. That's not the will of God. We desire, we want, we want. That's how you can tell whether it's of God or not, whether it's God's will or not. Why do you want the new vehicle? Because I want to be this way or that way? Why do you want the new house? Because I want to keep up. I want. Well, what does God want? I want to share my faith with others. Why? Because God says he's not willing that any should perish. You see the difference? What is the will of God for our lives? We have to know that. We have to know what his will is. We have to understand what his will is. We have to actively pursue his will. Just like you actively pursue anything in your life, whatever it might be, you have to actively pursue the will of God to know what His, know what he, his will for your life is. He might just want some of you or, one of, or some of you to stop working where you're working and try something else. Maybe. And maybe he's spoken that. Maybe he said something. And maybe he, maybe, well, this is a comfortable position. I'm, I've been here for a long time. I've been doing this for a long time. Or maybe he wants you to, to step out in faith in something. Well, I'm quite content where I'm at. How do we know his will if we don't seek it? How do we know his will if we don't pursue it? And then he goes on and he gets pretty, John, James gets pretty uh, harsh here. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity 
with God. So when we seek our own passions, whatever those passions are, self, self-indulgence, when we seek those passions, we are at enmity with God. We are at odds with God. Why? Because we are not seeking His will. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say, okay, well, then you're no longer allowed to watch any secular television or any secular videos or any, listen to any secular music. That is between you and God, what God's will is for you, and that's why it's important to know God's will. But what I will tell you is that if God tells you to do something, start, stop, or change something, and you say, I'm not comfortable with that, I'm not going to do that, you are making yourself an enemy of God. Because God's will is God's will, and His will will, His will will be performed. Whosoever therefore will be, will be a friend with the world is an enemy of God. Do not think that the scripture says in vain, he yearns jealously for, for the spirit that lives in us, but he gives more grace. For this reason, it says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. So let's look at that for a moment. I don't want to do what you want me to do, God. I'm not comfortable with that. That's pride, isn't it? So God's going to resist us for our pride. And then there's a whole other avenue we can go down this about being teachable. Are we teachable in the eyes of God? If we are seeking our own will, seeking our own passions, are we really teachable? When God says start, stop, or change something and we refuse, we're not teachable. It's like we said last week, maybe God uses someone to speak to you through his own, through his spirit, and you, and you don't receive that. The question is, are we teachable then in that moment? And the answer is no, we're not. God wants us to be teachable. Do you, not, do, do you think that the scripture says in vain, in, in vain he yearns jealousy for the spirit that lives in us? He yearns jealously for the spirit that lives within us. He desires us. And when we, when we don't give him what he desires, he's jealous. And what does he want? He wants you, all of you. He wants me, all of me, every part of me, every crevice, every, every part of me. That's what he wants. And if, and if I hold something back from him, whether it be anything at all, he becomes jealous because I'm not giving him my completeness. He's given us his completeness. He has given us everything. 
his only begotten son. He has given us that. That's his all. That's everything. That's everything. When Abraham brought Isaac up to, Mount, uh, up, up to the mountain and was going to sacrifice him, that was everything to Abraham. He gave everything to God. Do we give everything to God? Sadly, we can all say no, me included. Because we're human. And God understands we're human, but he still requires us to give everything. Every crevice, every portion of our heart, he requires that. And if we don't give that to him, he is jealous of that. And we are prideful. So God resists us because we're prideful. I want you to give me this. Oh, I'm not comfortable with that. I want you to do this. I'm not comfortable with that either. I just can't do it. So that in a way, in a sense, is pride. And he then, do that too much, he will resist us. He'll begin to not hear us. And he'll leave us in our reprobate ways until we've come to a place of total surrender. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So when we come back to God, or if we give everything to God, he's right there. He's right there for us. He's with us. He's walking with us. Hand in hand, so to speak. And then he goes on and he says, Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Kind of talking about, James is talking about his brother, Jesus. Devil tempted him how many times in the desert? Three times in the desert. And what happened after the third time? He resisted the devil the third time, and the devil flee, fleed from him. I don't know if that's an actual word, but he fleed from him, right? So with us, if we resist the devil, if we resist that desire to fulfill the lusts of the flesh, if we resist the desire to always be right, to always have what we want and do what we want, and only think about number one, if we resist that, the enemy will flee from us and God will be there. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, understand, this is a requirement of us to draw near to God before he draws near to us. Why is that? Because it is something that we must do. God has already given everything. He's already, he's already done everything. He's given everything already. The ball's in our proverbial tennis court, side of the tennis court. We now have to go to him before he will come to us. Because he's already came to us, given his son. Now we must go to him. And it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
That is something we're supposed to be doing every day, drawing near to God. If we draw near to God, we won't have to worry about fulfilling the lust of the flesh. We won't have to worry about fulfilling those things that are not of God because we'll be drawing near to Him and He will see us through. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. How would you like to hear those kinds of sermons every Sunday? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That would make you feel great every Sunday, wouldn't it, being called a sinner and you're double-minded, wouldn't it? James is putting it on the line. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James, through the Holy Spirit, knows the people's hearts. He knows they're double-minded. What is double-minded? Double-minded is, I'm going to follow God, but when, when it's convenient for me to follow God, but I'm going to do what I want the rest of the time. That's double-minded. I'm going to live my way on Monday through Friday, and Monday through Saturday, and Sunday I'll live the way, I, the way, the way of a Christian. I will live the way I want to live during the work week and Sunday I'll go to church party on Saturday night got paid on Friday I can go out blow half my paycheck on whatever I want to do whatever that looks like for you but on Sunday I'll, I'll be a Christian on Sunday that's double minded he calls them sinners because being double minded is sinful being double-minded is sinful. Grieve and mourn and weep. Lay, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. Our mourning, our, our, our noticing of our sin, our desire to know God should bring us to a point of realizing our sinfulness. And that sinfulness should bring us to the point of weeping and wailing and mourning because of how we have treated God. The reality of our sin should bring us to that point where there has to be a real change. Well, there has to be a real change. Grieve, mourn, and weep. I think we've all grieved someone that's close to us when they've gone on to eternity. Grieving in that way because we've not followed God. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. Real humble repentance. We look at stories of repentance in the Old Testament. I think about Nineveh when Jonah told them that they were going to be judged for their evil deeds. They realized their sin and they were mourning in sackcloth and ashes from the king down to the smallest littlest common person and God spared them because they were they were repentant 
True repentance should cause us to mourn. True repentance should cause us to grieve. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. In a time of repentance, when we're truly repenting before God and we're mourning and we're weeping and we feel like we've, we've just reached the end of our rope and why would God want to forgive us? Why would God want to love us? Because we've been so horrible to him and he's done nothing but been blessings to us. Why would God want to do that? That's when Jesus Christ lifts his hand down and lifts our head up and tells us he loves us. And it's that kind of mourning, that kind of repentance that brings real change to a person who is a sinful person. It is that kind of change, that kind of repentance that makes a sinner a saint. It is that kind of repentance that can change our households, our families, our friends. And if you want people to model Christianity, if you want people to know, come to know Jesus Christ, then we must model it in front of someone. When I was a young man, 150 years ago, I had a nephew. I still do. He's still alive. But I, have, I raised my nephew from three months old till he was 10. My sister um, was going through some things. And so I, I and my mother took on that responsibility for her as she was going through things. She has since now been chained, turned, turned everything around. But I can remember when he started walking. He walked with a limp on his left side. And he did that for a while. We couldn't figure out why. And then we realized he watched me. And he imitated me. There was nothing wrong with his legs. I modeled, that's how you walk. So he walked like me. You see, when, if we want someone to follow Christ... We have to model it in front of people. If we want people to have a positive attitude, we have to be positive. If we want people to have forgiveness in their hearts, we have to have forgiveness in our hearts and model that. If we want someone to be more loving to their fellow man, then we must show grace as well. People learn what they see. People learn what's modeled in front of them. That's why you have people that are, that are uh, pastors from generation to generation to generation, and you see and people that are doctors from, that, you know, the grand, grand, grandpa and dad was a doctor, so I'm a doctor, and I want my kid to be a doctor. So it's modeled in front of them as a fulfilling life. Is Christ a fulfilling Savior? If so, 
We must model that. If he's not to you, then, then I would suggest getting before God and checking our heart, finding out why he is not fulfilling to us. What have we let in that's taking his place? What have we given over to that has now taken over us? Those are things we must do. Things we must ask. Things we must delve into our lives. Does that make sense? So you might ask, what is my assignment this week? To inspect our hearts and to find out is Jesus, is God fulfilling to me? And if not, why? Because that's where it stems from. That's where everything stems from. If he is not fully in our heart, fully the Lord of our heart, our actions are not going to be right. Our mouths are not going to be right. Our attitudes aren't going to be right. So is Jesus really the Lord of your life? Is he really fulfilling? And if not, why? What have we let in? What have we given ourselves over to? Amen. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you today for your grace. Help us, Lord, to look heavily upon ourselves as, Father, we figure out whether you are Lord supreme in our lives or if not. I pray you'd bless and minister to us by your Holy Spirit. Give us the ability to see the changes that need to be made and apply them to our lives that, that tomorrow would be better than today and the next day better than yesterday and tomorrow and so on and so forth. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you and be teachable and be willing to accept and to welcome rebuke and discipline from you. Lord, we thank you and we give you praise. And Lord, we know that this discipline and rebuke is not out of hatred. It is not out of destruction. But it's out of building up one another, building ourselves up to be better for you. So Lord, I ask that you administer to us this week, that you would touch our lives. And Lord, we give you praise and thanksgiving in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Stepping Stones of Faith. I pray that you find value in this content. You can also find an audio podcast of this program on all the major podcasting platforms. Just type Stepping Stones of Faith into the podcast search bar. Once again, I'm Pastor Josh. Thank you for joining me today.